continue our series on the books of First and Second Thessalonians as we walk through standing firm in the Lord and understanding how our faith can truly be in enlivened and uh, grown in through each and every day of our lives. In this series, we will be walking through these two books, and Pastor Chuck has created an online resource for us that is very helpful for you. It's almost like a summary of his week one message that gives you the map, understanding of where Thessalonica is, the Macedonia province, the second missionary journey of Paul, the purpose of the letter, a whole lot of good information. You can download that by scanning the QR code, or you can go to our Church Center app, or you can go to our website and have that free resource as we walk through this series. I promise It'll be very helpful. In last week's message, Pastor Chuck walked us through verses 1 through 3 in 1 Thessalonians. We'll be continuing on there. But he talked about how Paul was the author of this letter and how he was so inspired by the Thessalonican believers who, by their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. They were truly making a huge impact. And so Pastor Chuck left us with a challenge. And this is a challenge that we all want to take as we walk through this journey together through this book. Are we making an impact in our faith? Is our faith making an impact? We're going to add to that today and hopefully undergird that as well. Uh, but as today, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10 in 1 Thessalonians. Here he says, We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought the good news to you, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what he said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of severe suffering it brought you. And in this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. And as a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece, all throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Now, as these believers in Thessalonica were living in their faith, I want you to put yourself in their shoes for a moment. They're in the midst of severe persecution, which we learn right here in this verse, but also from last week's message. And Paul has started a new church. These are really new, fresh believers. Uh, scholars seem to think that it's somewhere from like just weeks and maybe just a few months that they've been impacted. And in the midst of this, they, the, the, the discipleship that's going on there is having such an impact in the city, the city officials get irate. And they're so upset that there's people being converted to the faith, they literally create riots in the streets and blame Paul, Timothy, and Silas. And so they get an edict, they get them kicked out of town, and so they're facing severe persecution and the threat of even death. So they leave to another city to keep proclaiming the gospel. So imagine you've just come to faith as a new believer. You've just experienced the hope of glory in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The old is gone, the new has come, you've got this new hope, this new energy, this new zeal, but then the same people that should be encouraging you, your friends and your family, are the very ones that are now are persecuting you. And you're feeling isolation, you're feeling uh, betrayal, you're feeling all these things. You're saying, oh man, we came to God, shouldn't life be good now? Shouldn't we, be, we shouldn't be facing these kind of episodes and events. But even in the midst of this persecution, they still had a strong faith. And I want you to realize this is like months of discipleship only. One or two months at the most that they were fed into and their mentors were gone. And can you imagine later in their ministry and in their life as they're planning the church there in Thessalonica that they get this letter from Paul. And then all of a sudden they hear these words again in verse 4. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. 
Now, I want you to take for a minute, if you've ever been isolated and alone, and you've ever felt like you didn't have people in your corner, how encouraging would this word be? You, brothers and sisters, we know that God loves you and you are chosen. You are his people. You are his people, and he has given you the power that you need to withstand everything that's going on in your life. Now, the word chosen here in the Greek language is eklektos, which means chosen out, select one. It can also be translated elect. Some of your translations have the elect, the chosen of God. That's where we get our doctrine of election, along with a whole lot of other scriptures as well. We want you to know at Turning Point that we hold a very extreme tension between the free will of our, of our faith and also the divine sovereignty of our God. And we want to escape the extremes of denying any human responsibility or minimizing God's sovereignty. And so we want to hold that tension that we find throughout all of Scripture. What's the most important thing to understand is that this side of heaven, we may never fully understand how God chose us. But what we really want to know is that he has chosen us. And he wants us to have complete assurance. And one thing we can be sure of is this. Salvation begins with God. This was God's idea. John 15, 16 tells us, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So what we see here even in John's gospel, he's saying that the the transformation that you have in faith is going to be a lasting one. I chose you to bear fruit to make an impact. Not just simply to have faith and it's in with yourself. We need to understand that in this verse, we see that we have all that we need from the Father if we pray in his name and he will give it to us for the purpose of extending his kingdom. We must understand that the entire plan of salvation was God's idea. Ephesians chapter 1, 4 says that it was before the foundation of the earth was laid, before we were ever even thunk up, right? Before you were a thought or a glimmer or a spark in your mama and daddy's eyes, God already saw you. Let that sink in. He saw you. And he chose you. Can you imagine the inspiration that must have given to the first Thessalonian church to understand that God saw them even before they were born and knew the struggles that they would go through and say, you are my dearly loved child. I chose you to bear fruit, to make an impact So we need to understand that salvation was God's idea. It begins with God. Also, salvation involves God's love. We see in Romans chapter 5, 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. The verse continues on that it proves God's love for us. You see, God didn't wait for us to get cleaned up. Amen? God didn't wait for us to become faithful. This was his idea, and it was because of his amazing mercy and grace and love that he sought us out. He saw us. He sought us. He provided a way for us to be redeemed and be put in right relationship with God. Salvation is God's idea. Salvation involves God's love. Salvation involves, though, faith. Right? Ephesians 2.8 says this, For it is by what grace that you have been saved. So it's by God's doing through what faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works that anyone should boast. 
These are just a few small sample verses that are throughout the New Testament. The ultimate talks about God's sovereignty and also our free will. You read the Gospel of John, you see, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. They're conditional phrases, but you also see in Ephesians that we are chosen by God. There is a tension, and we can't take either extreme. We need to understand that we have a responsibility, and God has a responsibility, and he's done his work perfectly. So salvation, we also can understand, involves the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Warren Wiersbe explains this this way. As far as God is concerned, I was saved, right? I was saved and claimed as a child of God before the world began. As far as Jesus, the Son, is concerned, I was saved when he died and rose again from the cross. As it, as it concerns the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, I was saved when I confessed my sins faithfully received God's great mercy in my life, and I began to live my life for his glory. So we have to understand there is a con, there's always this tension. We don't want to take either extreme, but well, the biggest thing we need to understand is do we know we're chosen by God today? Do you know if you're a child of God? Because if you don't, you will not have the power and the authority and the strength you need to stand firm in every circumstance that comes your way so that you'll still be able to glorify God through his word. We have got to be grounded in our identity with Christ. We have to know, as the Thessalonican church knew, that they were dearly loved children of God and they were chosen. As we see in verse 5 and we continue, because Paul says, For when we brought you the good news, it was not just with words. Right? It's just not just an intellectual thought, right? It's not just something that's like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. No, that's a beautiful thought, right? But salvation is much more than just an intellectual ascent where I know that I have this thing called salvation. It is more than an intellectual just understanding. But it also came with what? Power. It comes with power. It comes with authority. Not our power, but God's power, God's authority, God's transformational understanding and impact in our lives. He continues on saying, for the Holy Spirit gave you what? Full assurance that you, what we said was true. So when we said we know you're children of God, God's Spirit spoke to your spirit and confirmed that in your heart. So no matter what happens and no matter what else anybody says, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are God's chosen child. Amen, church? That should give us a power and an energy and a renewing factor every morning when we wake up, just like it gave the Thessalonican church, because we see that they were under severe persecution but yet they had complete assurance that God had changed them, restored them, redeemed them, and sent them on a mission. Paul continues in verse 5 when he says, And you know of our concern from you, from the way we lived when we with you. In other words, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, we hear from his writing that they modeled their faith. They told them of the times they were persecuted. They told them of time after time after time after time where they got kicked after city, out of city, after city, but yet they still knew they were children of God claimed by the king of heaven and that they were still on a mission to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't ever waver from that, so they modeled this. They showed that concern to the Thessalonican church so that it was grounded, rooted in their souls. So that we see in verse 6, it says, So you, the Thessalonican church, received the message with what? Joy. Joy, 
from the Holy Spirit. Now, notice this phrase. We don't want to skip over this quickly. In spite of severe suffering it brought you. And in this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. And as a result, you become an example to all the believers throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Now, I want you to think about that. When we first came to faith, I don't know about you, when, when you guys experience suffering, do you guys feel joy? Is anybody? I see a hand. It's Bueller, right? Nobody? Okay. Right? It's like, it's, remember, this is not a joy that's like, yay! Right? It's like, hey, you know, I'm going through cancer. It's great. Praise Jesus. It's not what we're talking about. It's a joy that says, even in the spite of the most difficult circumstance that I ever face in my life, I know that I'm a child of the King. That He has not forsaken me. That He will be with me every moment when I cry out to Him, when I call upon His name. Even if this pain or this hurt or this thorn in my flesh is not removed, I know that God is still faithful and I still will praise His name. The Thessalonican church had this unwavering commitment to God because they had people in their life that modeled it in such a way that they were able to catch it and then imitate it and then pass it on to others. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't so I can have my personal private life insurance from hell policy. And then you burn in hell. Right? That's not what it's about. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a personal, private, kept thing. It's something that we proclaim over and over again, even in spite of our suffering. I know that's not popular in today's teaching and preaching from the pulpit. It's more of an understanding. It's like, if you just come to Jesus, everything is going to be okay. Has anybody ever heard that? I'm here to tell you something. Just because you call upon the name of Jesus doesn't mean the circumstances that you're in right now will be wiped away. But what will change is your heart. What will change is your knowledge that the Savior loves you and cares for you and has a purpose for your life, even in the midst of this suffering. Tim Keller states this about suffering, and this is difficult at times to hear. Some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrongful patterns of life, as in the case of Jonah, who was a prophet of God who ran away from him, was thrown into the sea into a mighty storm until he said, okay, I will finally go preach the gospel, right? Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to protect future ones. Like in the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery wrongly, was convicted of a whole lot of things that wasn't even his responsibility, but he was put in a position of power and authority so that he could save all of Israel. And some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. Now, that's the hard one, isn't it? Have you ever read the book of Job? Did Job do anything to deserve any of that? He was a righteous man, a holy man of God. But suffering still took place because we live in a broken, hurting world Despite their suffering, their faith was secured. In fact, their faith was actually emboldened because they had the powerful example to imitate. It wasn't just Paul and Silas talking about suffering, right? It's like, hey, you know, when you guys suffer, you need to keep your faith and keep going. It's like, no, hey, I want to tell you the time when I was shipwrecked and I was deserted in the ocean for days at a time and finally made it drift back to land. And I 
Didn't know why. I think God had called me on this mission, this missionary journey, but yet he put my feet on solid ground again and led me to continue to proclaim the gospel. They had example after example that we share. And I think that's important for us as believers. We need to share some of our pain together with people to not think that we're all perfect people in perfect houses and perfect situations, right? Amen? We need to admit that we struggle, we have hurts, and we have fears, and we're lonely at times, but we know that God still reigns. And we know still God has a plan despite our suffering. We reunite together to proclaim his message of hope. And it was such a powerful message that they proclaimed that their impact led to transferable influence in the believers' lives in Thessalonica, but also led it to other believers as well throughout the area. In verse 8, it says this, And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to the people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. And I love this word ringing out. In the Greek, it's actually more like a thunderclap. You know, have you ever heard thunder, right? It's not just with no pause, like here we get some echo in this room, right? Hear that reverberation? It's not just the impact of the first sound. That sound continues to reverberate over and over and over and over again. It's like in the prophet Isaiah said that my word will not return void, speaking of God. It's when we speak that word into existence, it carries on and on and on from one life to another life to another life to another life because God has given us a power that doesn't come from us, that's through the Holy Spirit. So when we speak his truth, his life over people, it not only impacts them, it influences them so that they want to go share that with someone else. Anybody else? That's what God is calling us to do when we receive salvation from God. It's not just a personal mark that ends with me or ends with you. I want you to think that the Thessalonican church, after a month to two months of discipleship, changed over 200,000 people's lives. It said the whole area and province had heard can you imagine what 1,800 people that attend Turning Point Church on even giving weekend, if they united together in the power of the gospel and the knowledge that they are children of the king, what they could do is they proclaim the gospel to Lubbock and the surrounding area. Can you imagine? Not just 200,000, 300,000, half a million, 600,000, a million people's lives could be transformed would ring out across not only this area, but all the way through Amarillo, all the way down through the Metroplex, all the way through the state of Texas, all the way through the surrounding United States. How big is your God that you serve? How big is the God who transformed you? Is it limited to you and your family, or is, it power, is he powerful enough to change the world? I believe we serve a God that's powerful enough to change the world, church. Amen? If we believe, even despite, no matter what goes on, we will be a people that don't just leave our faith personally impacting us, but it will be outward leaning. John Stott says this, the new birth, salvation, means little or nothing if it does not pull us out of our fallen introversion and redirect us towards God, Christ, and our fellow human beings. I love that passage. What he's basically saying is what Jesus said. The whole gospel, the whole Bible is summed up in basically two commandments, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And to do what? To love your neighbor as yourself. But too often, the reason we can't love our neighbor as ourselves is because we've never received the love of God and allowed it to incarnate in our lives and to work out its full work in us so that we don't even love ourselves so we can't love anyone else. The power of the gospel has to start with you. 
It's not your family's faith. It's not your grandparents' faith. It's your faith, your transformation, and your proclamation. See, it wasn't the ordained clergy that made the impact as much as it was the people who heard the gospel and spread it like wildfire. This is what was taking place in the believers' lives in Thessalonica. They took what they were taught, they learned and caught what they imitated from the apostles, and then they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ in all aspects of their lives. So much so, I love what Paul says here. We don't need to tell them about it. Let's just stop there for a second. Can you imagine as an evangelist coming to a big rally? I got this message prepped. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to deliver the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. And it's like, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus. And they say, hey, stop, Paul. We already heard. We already know. We're already living. We're already proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, For they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you're looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. And he is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. That is a perfect summary of the gospel message and how we should live our lives and what we should proclaim is the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world. Can you imagine Paul going, yeah. Man, after one month to two months of me teaching this information to a group of new believers, look at how far this has spread. That's the power of the gospel. Sometimes in Scripture we overlook the fact that the Holy Spirit is the only teacher that we need. Amen? Even if we don't have anybody, God's Spirit will speak to our spirit and confirm what is truth. And when we proclaim it, it will reverberate across this nation. I believe the Thessalonica's church redirected their life in such a way to love God and to love neighbors. It was a wildfire of transformation, not just in their personal lives and their family lives, but the whole community. I love how Paul, here in this writing, he takes 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, and verses 9 through 10, and shows us kind of a chiastic structure, a parallelism to understand what it meant to receive Christ what salvation looked like, how we should exercise our faith. As we go to that next slide, it says this, your work of faith. See, he was praising them for this, but what is the work of faith? Well, the work of faith is when you turn to God and away from idols. For us, you may not have little kitchen idols that you stick in there where you're worshiping little statues or little cultic figures, but we do have things that we worship. Sometimes we worship our families. Sometimes we worship our work. Sometimes we worship multiple aspects of finances. And we have to turn from all of those idols and surrender it all to God, turn it to God, away from idols so that our life is no longer the same. Here's the thing. When we receive Christ, if we're still the same way that we were when we received him, that we are now, then we've got to ask ourselves, have we been changed? Because there is always change that takes place in the believer's heart and in their lives, in their action. We can't just say, well, that's just the way I am. No, the gospel changes us. So our work of faith leads to that. Your labor of love is to serve the living and true God. What's amazing is the Thessalonican church served the living and true God. How? By serving the very people who were persecuting them. As Pastor Chuck said in week one, some people are just prickly. They're tough to love. Amen? Right? You know that fingernail on a chalkboard personality, right? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. 
that kind of squealing. You're like, oh my gosh, just don't let them stop by the office. Can we be honest, right? Or some of your kids' friends are coming over like, no, not that one. But despite severe persecution and disagreement with our own personalities, they loved and served God by proclaiming the gospel to all people, even if they were unlovable because they knew that God loved them when they were unlovable. And then finally, their enduring hope was to wait for the coming of God's Son, Jesus. You see, they understood that they could temporarily deal with whatever situation was going on in their lives because they knew Christ was coming back. They knew that ultimately this life is not the end, church, amen? That we one day will be united in heaven to be united with him and be in his presence without pain, without hurt, without sorrow, without grief, without shame. And so we can understand that there is a new hope, a new glory waiting for us. So we see Paul praising them for all these things. And it's important to note that their waiting was an active waiting. They didn't just come to faith and sit in a corner and say, okay, God, come back. Sometimes we feel like that, right? Do you ever feel that way or is it just me? I mean, I'm just praying like, Lord, would you please come back? Our government is really jacked up. Like, can we not do better than these choices? I mean, where have we gone? I'm like, God, please come back. The signs are evident. Just please, I'm ready to go. Rather than saying, Father, this world is jacked up, but you've given me the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to proclaim to hurting and broken people so that their lives will be transformed. And I don't want a single soul that's in my sphere of influence to not know Jesus Christ and know his anointing and know his salvation so that they can have life eternal. Amen? We don't wait passively. We wait aggressively. I love how Dallas Willard sums this up when he says the gospel is less about how to get into the kingdom of heaven after you die and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. I don't think you heard that. The gospel is less about how to get into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, fire insurance. Saved from hell. I got baptized. I'm going to be with Jesus. After you die, and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. Amen? God wants you to have power and to have it now and to have life abundant. Full assurance means that you're not walking around in fear. God wants to restore you, redeem you, so that you can go out and help others be restored and redeemed so that your impact has long-lasting influence. Amen, church? God wants us to understand that heaven is not just merely a location at the end of the road. Heaven isn't merely a station at the end of the line. Our salvation now, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is at hand. It's here. Are we children of God with the power of God to proclaim the word of God? You see, we're called to have an impact and influence. For instance, you can impact your kids by teaching them generosity, but... If they don't learn the principle of generosity and become generous people, and they don't learn to imp- kind of replicate and to live that out, then you just had an impact that ended with you. Because then what they did is they just grew up to be selfish little turds, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. It's like you were generous. You gave them everything that they needed. You gave them everything they wanted. 
You encouraged them, you inspired them, you took them to Sunday school, you took them to go serve people, but if they don't go and replicate that and teach others to do the same, we've only had impact, we have not had influence. The Thessalonica church had impact and influence. They changed the world because they modeled what they had been taught. If you're a believer, a called person, you are called to be impactful and influential. I recently went on a retreat uh, operated by James Craft, uh, the founder of Life Unplugged, and was inspired by the whole thing. I want to thank uh, the Waldrops here for sending me on that trip. It was extraordinary. Um, it was impacted by one of the talks there was with the power of the uniqueness of you. You see, God has called each and every one of us not to be mindless drones. He's not taking away your personality, your characteristics. He wants you to have the power of the gospel so you can impact your life and the lives of others. Now, most of us want to make an impact and influence, don't we? Can we say that? But most of us say this right after that. It's like, I just don't have the what? Time. I just don't have the time. My life is filled up. Well, all of us have the same 168 hours a week. Did you know that? And this is kind of how a natural breakdown takes place. We have 56 hours of sleeping, 22 hours of eating, 11 hours in personal care and hygiene. I know some people do more than that, others, but... Um, I'm not going to point that out to anybody. 14 hours of housework. I know some of the ladies are saying, my husband does not work no 14 hours of housework. Um, we won't go there either. There's counseling free on me if you need help with that. All right, 10 hours of commuting. We've also got 40 hours of working, seven hours of socializing, leaving only eight hours of discretionary time. Maybe another way to put it is this way. 85% of what you do, anyone can do. 10% of what you can do, someone else can do with some training but only 5% of what you do, no one else can do. And so today I want to challenge you this. What is the 5% that you need to be investing in with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can have an impact and influence It's these five things? Be the spouse that only you can be. No one else can be the husband, no one else can be the wife but you. Now, if you're single, then be the friend that only you can be. Second thing, be the parent to your children. I love our church. I love our children's ministry. It rocks. But you are tasked with the raising up of your kids for the glory of God and to nurture them. If you don't have kids, I love the fact that we have so many of our staff that mentor young people and they don't have kids. They're single. I love it. We're challenged, number three, to grow in our relationship with Christ so that you will imitate the Lord and to be a witness so that they will then replicate your faith. Also, number four, care for your body. This is this is an important one. We want to be around for the, as long as we possibly can to impact the kingdom, right? And to impact our families for Christ. We also need to, here's a good one, enjoy life. I love how JD talked about they went on just a fun day to laugh. You know how important that is for your faith? You know how important that is for other non-believers to see that Christians aren't just sticks in the mud? I mean, let's be honest, right? They think, man, those Christians, they don't do anything. All they do is sit in their room and read the Bible, and it's like... And they just speak judgmentally. No, we have fun. We laugh. We joke. Like I went with Officer Sean this this uh, this Friday and went out to his lease and rode razors. Went seventy something miles an hour in the dirt. That's a blast. But we also talked about life. We also talked about and learn his story. You can learn more about my story. How are you impacting, influencing lives? You see, I want to make sure that my wife knows that I love her is Christ loved the church. Why? 
because I have two kids that I want them to know what a God-honoring marriage looks like because they're at 20 and 25 and both of them could at any moment be married. And I want them to live the life that they saw in us to understand what a God-honoring marriage looks like and how to love a husband and how to love a wife. I also want my kids to know that I spent time with them to disciple them, to encourage them, to equip them so that they would know how to walk in their faith when life stunk. Because let's be honest, when I first started praying for my kids, like, Lord, keep them from this bullying. Amen, anybody? Lord, help them avoid persecution at any cost. But you know what? I had to change my prayers because you know what? That is just a pipe dream. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. If you've got young kids, your kids are going to be bullied. Your kids are going to have rotten people in their life to do rotten things. But what we can do is pray for them. It's like, you know what, Lord, when that arises in their life, may you reassure their little hearts that they are children of God, that they are joint heirs with the King, that they have a purpose in their life. No matter what anybody speaks over them, I'm going to make sure that they know that they are chosen, that they are loved by God. Amen, church? That's how we pray in the midst of persecution. It says, I don't care what the world brings against me. My God is greater. Amen? My God is more powerful. And that is the message that is going to transform Lubbock, Texas, and the whole world if we start modeling the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ.